Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. I had the opportunity to sit down recently with Toby Brown. Toby is the CEO and founder of Deviate Legal Strategies, and he's a true pioneer in pricing and project management in the legal industry. Toby got his start in law firm administration and soon moved to become a director of the Utah State Bar. But it was his move to head of knowledge management at Fulbright and Jaworski that marked the start of his business of law innovation journey, which has since led to a number of roles at AmLaw 100 firms, building pricing and project management programs. Today, Toby helps legal organizations break from the status quo and develop differentiated and sustainable strategies in lateral partner hiring, pricing, and legal project management. Toby is a respected speaker on topics such as legal management, marketing, and technology. He also founded the Standards Advancement for the Legal Industry and was co-founder of the Three Geeks and Law Blog. Among other things, we discussed Toby's professional journey, how it led to legal project management, the need for standards in the profession, what drives him to bring people together in the industry, and his new venture at Deviate Legal Strategies. Thanks for listening. I'm joined today by Toby Brown. Toby, how are you? Um, it's a good day in Texas, I'll say that. <laughs> I thought every day was a good day in Texas. That's a fair statement. <laughs> you can be somewhere else or you can be in Texas. There you go. Don't you have a storm coming your way? We're at the very bottom of where the cold is going to hit. So we're not sure how much we'll even get. So hopefully it'll be modest. Well, there you go. Well, you're you're wearing short sleeves and I'm jealous because I'm talking to you from Chicago where it's not short sleeve weather. How cold is it there? It's not bad. It's in the 40s right now. Okay. It's not as bad as it could be. It's going to get colder though. What are you, you going to do? So Toby, I, at some point I, I want to get into your your newest venture. But let's sort of start at the beginning. You've got a graduate degree, master's in economics, an undergrad in economics, and yet you've spent the vast majority of your career in the legal profession. Did you just stumble into this erroneous path? Or how did it come that you chose to sort of spend your career trying to make the legal profession better? So I give advice to my children. Well, I've given advice. They're all old enough now. They're past it said, be careful of the jobs you take in college. So an undergraduate, and this gives you a sense of how I've sort of spanned quite a bit in the legal profession. I started out as back then we called them runners. I was a messenger at Home Roberts and Owen in undergraduate school. In graduate school, I went back to Home Roberts and Owen and was their librarian. So, Which is a law firm, I take it. It was a law firm. It was acquired by Brian Cave of two or three years ago. They were a Denver-based sort of Mountain West regional law firm, a couple hundred lawyers maybe. So I started at the very bottom. When I graduated, I'm like, okay, I need to go get a job job. And I'm like, well, what business do I know? And it was the legal business. So I went, and and this will be a theme, I started the CLE program for the Utah State Bar. They were just about to implement mandatory CLE. This tells you it was a few years ago. And so I built their CLE program from scratch. And then over the years, I built their technology department, their marketing communications, their access to justice, just built a lot of those up. Um, I did have a stint in the interim where I went back to Home Roberts and Owen as their office administrator for a period of time in their Salt Lake City office. You were at the Utah State Bar for a long time. 
17 years, I think. Yeah. Towards the end of that, I was really starting to innovate in a very, I was way ahead of my time. This would have been 1999, maybe 2000. No, it was a little later than that. But I moved the Utah State Bar's membership system into the cloud. There was a... Around 2000? Yeah. There was a company called LegalSpan that did online CLE. And I said, hey, I have this idea. And they said, let's do this. And we created something called Bar Alliance, which was going to be an alliance of bar associations. So we would commonly come together, spec out a membership management system that would work for bar associations because of their unique nature with discipline and lawyer referral and things like that. And so I moved their management system into the cloud that long ago. So I've been innovating for a little while. So let's stick on the Utah thing for a minute. I know it's I know it's a long time ago, but Utah continues to do some interesting and innovative things in terms of regulation and their sandbox currently. And your experience interests me because it's clearly a state bar association. And I know the innovation piece is largely driven by the Supreme Court out there. But I don't think of Utah as being a bastion for innovation. And yet there had to be something about it that allowed you to have the freedom to, because with innovation comes a chance for making mistakes and, and errors. And You know, I hadn't thought about it, but actually, yeah, the Utah State Bar was quite innovative. In fact, some of the stuff I did back when I was there was foundational for the sandbox. So we had a multidisciplinary practice task force. And again, this would have been back in the day. And it explored non-lawyer ownership at law firms a lot of things like that that ended up being part of the sandbox. So over the years, we had talked about a lot of that stuff. In fact, this takes me back to a mid-early memory. When I was the librarian at Home Robertson Owen, the, the managing partner of the office came into me and said, hey, can you figure out this computer thing? And he handed me an <laughs> IBM XT computer with a stack of five and a quarter floppies. And I'm like, <laughs> I remember those. I, I go, what is this? And, he's, and this is, again, innovation coming from Utah. The predecessor to Hot Docs was called Capsoft. And this lawyer wrote the book on basically trust and estates for Utah and Idaho. It was a guy named Stan Neelman, wonderful gentleman. And they had created document generation back then, but it was all DOS based and very manual. So I would have to, to boot the computer, I'd have to put disks in, and then I would put the Capsoft disks in, and then I would bring the paralegal in and I'd teach her how to run the software so she could generate trusts and estates, wills and trusts out of that early, early document generation tool. It's a different world now, isn't it? And still, document generation is not widely adopted. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's interesting. You're right. I mean, the document automation software has been around for a very long time, and yet it's still... It's one of the slowest adoption curves I've ever seen. I totally agree. Because I was like, this is cool. Like, this is going to, you know, be a wave rushing over the profession, but not so much. But that was invented. Uh, it was a kind of a partnership. He was an adjunct at BYU's law school. And Marshall Maurice, I'm trying to remember the guy's name, one of the founders of Hot Docs. I got to work with him, too, back in the day. Huh, fascinating. What is it about Utah that creates such an atmosphere that allows that type of innovation? Maybe it's less drinking. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good a reason as any, yeah. There is a definite work ethic in Utah. I'll say that. So Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so at the Utah State Bar, you do that, and then you take a number of jobs with uh, AMLO 100 firms. Yeah. And that was a combination of the company that built that hosted bar association management system was in Austin, Texas, and they offered me a job. 
And through that process, this is the oldest story there is. I, I met this woman who's my wife now. And we actually met at a, I was like to say there's an association for everything. There's even an association for associations. There's an association for bar associations. And we were on a panel at one of the, it was, it's the National Association of Bar Executives. And we met at that conference, which was tied to the American Bars Conference. And I was actually partially presenting on the Bar Alliance thing, but that's how we met. And so we met sort of coincided at the time. So I was, had moved to Austin and then over time ended up moving to Houston so I could actually live with her and be married to her. So I took a job with Fulbright Jaworski. Yeah. It, a lot of your jobs, before we get to the, your current venture, you know, have involved a number of things. I want to talk about them, practice management and, and innovation. But one consistent theme has been pricing. Yes. And I assume you've drawn on your economics background and statistics background to help you in that. But talk a little bit about how you've had some pricing responsibility now for 10, 12 years. Yeah. And that function, and I am old enough to remember when that didn't used to be that function in the law firms. Everything was just an hourly rate and you just argued with your partners about it. So talk a little bit about the evolution of that function and the increasing sophistication and tools you use. Sure. Sure. And here's a phrase I should have used when we were talking about Utah. I'm a pioneer. <laughs> you are a pioneer. Absolutely. And that's how Utah was founded. The Mormon pioneers uh, made it out to Utah. So the way that all came together, at the time I was head of KM at Fulbright, and I was seeing all this stuff start to happen where clients were demanding, they were actually asking for discounts and the first discounts were 5%. So I put together a presentation to leadership and the, the punchline of the presentation was KM is going to become mission critical because of alternative fee arrangements. All they heard was alternative fee arrangements because that that was all of a sudden becoming this new thing and no one understood it. So after the presentation, two partners rushed up to me and they said, what do you know about this? And I said, well, I've been studying it for years. I'd actually written an article, coincidentally, in the Utah Bar Journal in 94 on the value and, and why people should do that, why lawyers should embrace it. So they said, OK, we need your help. And I said, what help do you need? And this was a Tuesday morning. They said, this client is asking for an alternative fee arrangement. You're coming with us. So I was just thrown into the deep end of the pool, met in the general counsel that was a pipeline company, you know, Houston, obviously, and came up with the idea of a holdback success fee on a piece of litigation over the, you know, winning a motion for summary judgment. And it worked. And we won the motion and we got the bonus. And all of a sudden I was very popular and people started calling me. And I, I went to my boss at the time and said, hey, there's this alternative fee stuff. And she said, you know, you need to keep doing the KM stuff. And then I said, so I should tell partners no. And she goes, oh, no, if they ask you, help them out. <laughs> Four weeks later, I went back and I said, just so you know, this is all I'm doing. And so the managing partner of the firm said, hey, can you put together a program? So I put together, we had an alternative fee committee and I put together the way things would be analyzed and how we would look at all of it. And th that committee, that's the only fully functioning law firm committee I've ever worked with. There were only four members and they represented different practices and different geographies. And my high watermark was we turned a, a deal on Sunday evening. It was for South Korea in 20 minutes. Wow. The partner would come to me and say, here's what I want to do. I would do the financial analysis and look at the metrics of it and all that stuff. And then I would send it to the committee for approval. And we had an unspoken rule. 
Where if I didn't say anything, it meant I thought it was fine and then just approve, approve, approve. If I said, this is one you need to look at, then we would we'd call a meeting and analyze it. And if it was a big dollar thing, we'd have that partner join us. So that would have been like 12, 13 years ago. So I was one of the early people that started it at an ILTA meeting. This is sort of jumping ahead to how has this evolved? I convinced a friend of mine who worked for Lexus to host a happy hour. And I just sent out an email to everybody I knew and said, who do you know that's doing this alternative fee stuff? Tell them to come for a drink Wednesday evening or whatever it was at the ILTA conference. There were four of us at that meeting. Um, (laughs) And I'm still very good friends with the other three. Initially, we tried to do something within ILTA, but that wasn't the, the best fit. It's not their focus. Yeah. And so we ended up aligning ourselves with the Legal Marketing Association. And I founded a conference called the P3 Conference. And you may have heard of that conference. I've been to the P3 Conference on occasion. Yes, you have. I was going to say, I know you've heard of it. That's when things started to grow. Our first conference, we had like 190 people and people got word of it. And then so the three Ps, which I would interchange depending on my mood, it was always pricing legal project management. And then it was either practice innovation, process improvement, or practice management or whatever. But pricing was always the core of the P3 conference. But it started drawing these related roles, especially legal project management. Initially, like I say, you know, I built the one at Fulbright, then I rebuilt it one for Vincent and Elkins. And then when I went to Aiken Gump, I ended up at a chief role. And each time I built the pricing program, they become more and more sophisticated. So at Perkins, I had, geez, I don't even know. I can't tell you. You know, I would say at least a dozen people on the pricing team, but they had varying roles. And now I'm going to, this is me totally. I bounce all over. I'm going to go back to where it started. I met with a client. That was a brand new thing. And and I know one of the topics that comes up around pricing is, we you know, how does this go with partners? But one of my... Oh, that is going to be a question I'm going to ask, absolutely. Yes. So one of my golden rules I've developed over the years of doing this is that lawyers will do anything to avoid talking about fees. And that's both lawyers at a law firm and lawyers in-house legal departments. That first one I told you about with the pipeline company, it wasn't long after that where... It was a you know seven-figure client, long-term client of Fulbright's. And they said this client, he was an AGC over global litigation. It was a global oil field services company. And they said, he wants to talk to somebody about alternative free arrangements. Will you go do that? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And we set the date and everything. And I go to the relationship partner and I said, aren't you coming with me? And he goes, oh, no, no, no. You can just go. <laughs> go find oh, <laughs> my. <laughs> I was like, okay. there you go. So... I met with him and it was it was a great conversation because he started asking about related things like knowledge management and document management. And because I had a broad background, we could touch on all those things. But what I really learned, the seeds of what I learned in that conversation were you just listen. These people will tell you where their pain is. And one of the things this this AGC told me was the value they had put on a certain patent and Fulbright had just finished winning in a patent litigation trial on that patent. And when I got back to the office, they were like, how did it go? And I briefed them and I said, oh yeah, he says they value this patent globally at X dollars. And they all just said, how did, how did you get him to say that? And I said, I just asked him a bunch of questions and I let him answer them. And I said, he, he actually brought it up. And so I said, Hey, what, tell me more about that. So part of the lesson there is that, you know, lawyers struggle to talk about fees, but they're also, they like to go to clients with a solution. They don't like to go with just a bunch of questions. 
And so I've, I've discovered that that is a super high value function. So what I have seen in the evolution of pricing, and I know I have a very privileged that law firms and lawyers put trust in me on this, that if you're a pricing person and you get that in-person contact with the client, those are golden moments because you're, you're not going saying, I think you should do a fixed fee. You're going in and asking a bunch of questions about their internal you know, financial position, the economics, how they're viewing this matter. And a lot of it is actually scoping questions, which lawyers also aren't great at asking. That's understating it. Yeah. (laughs) Once you understand the client's fee pain and what they're really trying to accomplish, I always tell the clients, I'm not going to give you a number or a specific proposal in this conversation. I just want to truly understand what you're trying to accomplish. And the clients love that. I mean, they love that. And so then I come back afterwards and I'll typically have one, sometimes two options and say, well, you said this was important and that is important. The first one is focused on this and the second option is focused on that. And and they really appreciate that. You can't give them too many options. So the, the real secret of good pricing is understanding that client's situation and their pain so that whatever you put together is highly focused on solving that problem. Again, early at Fulbright, I would had success on whatever patent litigation. They're like, oh, we should bid every patent litigation like this. And I said, no, you should not. <laughs> and I, in fact, I had at Aiken Gump a patent litigation, two patent litigations for the same client with very different fee deals because each patent had a different value to the business. So what's happened in the evolution is you have people like me who have direct client interaction. And for my team, for succession and other reasons, I force opportunities for pricing managers to have direct client interaction, initially bringing them in with me or having them be with the director or senior director so they get the feel for how the conversations go and get a comfort level. But I've tried to push that down through the ranks. But down in the ranks, that's where more, you know, I haven't had to run one of those spreadsheets, I'll say in a few years, because that's what my pricing managers do. The partners come to them saying, hey, here's what I think this should be. And the pricing person will walk them through the client situation, try to tease out as much of the scope as they can. And then the pricing person will say, I think this is what it should be. Now, a challenge for pricing people is we are evangelists, we are technicians, and we are regulators, which is hard to balance. It Perkins and at the prior firms where I built these, you know, initially I said there was an AFA committee at Fulbright. When I went to V&E, they said, well, you should be the approver for these because you know the most about this. And I'm like, not a bad idea. So that evolved to a point. So at Perkins Coie, it's a two-pronged approval. The practice group has to approve it. And then I approve it on behalf of the firm because the practice group could have interests that may not be completely aligned with the firm. Like, for instance, a price-sensitive practice could go in and say, we want to give a 20% discount. And from the firm side, we're like, no, 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 because if we go win M&A work, we're not doing it at 20% discount. So the pricing approvals, that that's how that has evolved I and mean, has become very, very efficient as well. Actually, I, I delegated a lot of my pricing authority, most of my pricing authority to my director of pricing because she was on the front line. I just said, look, if you ever have a question or you think something's not right, then you pull me in. So the pricing people if they walk the partner through when they're done, it's easily approved because the pricing person helped mold it into a win-win type of solution. Two questions. One is the other profession that's grown internally in clients, sort of corollary to the pricing evolution, the pricing function is the legal ops function. 
And so my question is, what's the role of legal ops in pricing? And my second question is, then over on the law firm side, it's one thing to create a model and a financial model to price it out. It ought to, it ought to take this. We run it this way. We can do this. It's another thing to then execute on it, particularly where you're talking about perhaps staffing it a little bit differently, driving a little bit more efficiency. Partners tend to be a little sometimes optimistic about what needs to be involved. How does this correlate with practice management and the sort of the governance of these, of the execution on fee arrangements? So on the legal operations side of things, a lot of pricing people will have relationships with legal ops people. I have tons of legal ops relationships. And if there is, well, I'll just say this. If it's me and a legal ops person, we can get to a win-win price within 15 minutes. If the lawyers are involved, it takes much, much longer. Right. So a lot of pricing people develop relationships, especially with key clients where there's continual and ongoing rate issues and stuff like that. And and I'm going to come back to rate issues here in a minute. At Perkins, I ended up innovating a new group and we call it the client relationship group. And you might look at it and say, that's like a client account management thing. I was like, no, what it is, is it's a team of practice management like people that support the relationship partners for large revenue clients. And once you hear this, you're going, well, like, yeah, duh. It's just like a practice group chair doesn't have time to do everything. So you put a practice management person in there to run the practice group while they focus on strategy and business development and such. Same thing with the relationship partners. Um, and I, I'm going to jump to the end and I'll come back. In 2021, the clients under the CRG program, CRG client relationship group, revenue grew by 15% that client group. Wow. And it's, it, it's because it frees up the partner to focus on the relationship. And more importantly, it takes the friction or reduces the friction in the relationship. Now, a client account management program, it's going to be primarily about CLEs and social events and stuff like this. This is much more financial. And the, the simplest and easiest example is if there is a billing problem, then there's always a billing problem. If you've got a multi-million dollar client, you have many, many billing problems. Instead of the, the lead partner having to call an AGC or GC and explain a billing snafu, that doesn't happen anymore. The ops person calls the, the CRG person and says, hey, we've got some issues on these bills and they fix it. So there's a lot of stuff like that that happens. So that's where we have deeply embedded relationships with the legal ops people and that client relationship group. So that was your first question. Your second question was, and the way I put this is pricing people can come up with optimal win-win solutions, but do the lawyers execute along those lines? And I'm guessing you already know the answer to this. <laughs> I have a suspicion as to what the, I know. I know from my experience what the answer would be. I'm, I'm bet it's pretty much the same. Yeah. So the challenge there, the way I boil that down to is lawyers don't like to talk about scope. And even if you come up with a scope, when scope changes, no one says timeout. The scope has changed. We need to revisit our pricing or a strategy or something, but we can't just keep working. Now, when I was at Aiken Gump, I ran e-discovery and that's where we had huge scoping problems because what would happen is you'd be getting in and there'd be X terabytes of data for review and all of a sudden they'd find another terabyte of data and the partner would not go to the client and go, you know what? Discovery is going to cost this much more. 
But what they would do is just wait. And then when the bill super high, the client would go, hey, what's going on? And the partner would say, well, you remember when the, the discovery volume went up? That's what drove this. And the client's like, well, you should have told me then so that I could have told my CFO and not have a 25% surprise on this bill. We've been at the same firm, apparently. <laughs> Let's just say I'd, I've been at 4M off 50 firms and it's pretty much the same. Uh, so what I did at Perkins has developed a very robust legal project management. And I know that's near and dear to your heart. And that also tends to focus on larger revenue clients. Can I give them? Yeah, I'll give the number. It's north of $200 million in fees that that group oversees annually. And I I borrow a, a stat from a friend of mine, Casey Flaherty, who ran LPM at Baker McKenzie that he he was able to do a case study and show that with LPM, without LPM, and it's a full six-point improvement in realization. Because what it does to your core question is it keeps lawyers focused on execution and realize when they're going off scope or they're going off track that they only budgeted X dollars for this phase of the case and they're you know already 80% into it and they're only 50% into the effort. So it really just shines a very bright light so the lawyers aren't flying blind not finding out that they totally blew a budget until they look at the invoice that's been generated on the 30th of the following month. <laughs> right. You know how that goes. <laughs> I do. I've heard of such a thing. Yeah. So that, that's way too late to make a course correction. So the LPM team is really on top of all of those and very world-class, awesome team there at Perkins. Let me sort of change topics a little bit, change direction a little bit. The other thing you've done is you've also founded a number of conferences and associations. You mentioned P3, which I think has now become Legal Value Network. Yes. Uh, You're one of the founders of Three Geeks and a Law Blog. What drives you to sort of create these connection points, these ways of getting like-minded people together to share ideas? Well, some of it is selfish. So when I started P3, I'm like, okay, maybe I am at the forefront of this market, but I want to learn. And I knew if I brought other people that were doing something similar, I would learn things from them. And I still do to this day. In fact, I had an awesome conversation with this gentleman named uh, Bruno. He's from Portugal and we met this week and he's the strategy officer of one of the bigger firms in Portugal. And Hey, that's how I learned. So by building these communities and these, you know, centers of collaboration, I've always found that to be enriching. The big bonus is all of the wonderful friends I've made through the years of doing this. But so P3 started, it matured. I want to say we held it eight or nine years with the Legal Marketing Association. And we got up to around or just over 500 attendees. And we're like, you know, we've reached a critical mass. So the core group, we went to LMA and said, look, we think we've, we've matured to a point and we're distinct enough that we need to focus on our community. And we're going to do that by forming Legal Value Network. So we did that. <laughs> Although um, it's good and bad. Our birthday is March 10th of 2020, which if you remember, Mark, oh, that's bad timing. <laughs> well, I actually think it ended up being good timing because we became a life raft for a lot of people. We pivoted and went to we were going to hold a conference that October. And we're like, yeah, I guess we're not going to do that. So we pivoted and went to a lot of online content. And I, I literally had people say, you know, you were you were a lifeboat for me when I felt alone and no one was there. You know, there was no community for me. A unique thing about LVN is that there are three primary constituents, law firms, legal departments, and legal providers. And they're, they're equals at the table. 
you don't have to be a sponsor to be part of LVN. You can just be a member if you work for a legal tech company or consulting or whatever, because I strongly believe that the convergence of those three stakeholders is what will lift all boats up. It's that collaboration piece. So that's a core part of LVN is, is being inclusive that way. We were going to hold our first conference in October of 2021, and that's when the Delta variant was going nuts. So we postponed that. So we held our first conference in October or excuse me, September of this year. We were hoping we would get at least 100. Our cut point was 125. We had 400 people come. That's awesome. So, yeah, we were very, very pleased with that first showing. And so LVN is off and running. You mentioned three geeks. There's more than three these days, but I was like refer to myself as number two. Greg Lambert was the is number one and has been the brainchild of that. I actually, once I became a chief, I became a less frequent participant because there were fewer things I could write about and speak publicly about. There's one other organization I was instrumental in founding, and I don't know if you're aware of it, Sally. Oh, no. Uh, tell me about it. So Sally is S-A-L-I dot org. And Sally is at the acronym for Standards Advancement for the Legal Industry. It was one of my more brilliant moments coming up with that name. And the way Sally was born, I have frequently and still say ABA task codes are worthless. Yes, they are. Everyone thinks there's some gold in the task codes and clients to this day are going, oh, we're going to e-billing and we're going to use task codes because data, data will tell us everything. And I would trash the task codes from podiums frequently. And people finally cornered me and said, what should we do about this? And I said, well, if you really care about it, we should create a standards body. And here's why a standards body has to be independent and objective. It can't be like LVN. If LVN tried to generate standards, it, it would not go well. It has to be totally objective in how it does things. So they said, okay, let's do it. I'm like, yeah, no, you think this is, you know, a gathering in an afternoon and we're going to have a standard. So then it was what standard? And I said, well, I wouldn't start with task codes. That's way too far down in the weeds. I would start with what kind of work is this? And so everybody agreed that was a good idea. And I pushed them on, are you really committed? And they were. So we formed Sally. And I was reminded because we had a Sally meeting this morning that that was seven years ago. So I do all this stuff in my spare time. So I am the president of the board of Sally, and we are now working on version 3.0 of what we call our legal matter specification standard. And it 2.0 is impressive. It, 1.0 was super valuable, but it's, it's getting better and better as the standard grows. And the way you create a standard is you get the stakeholders together and everybody gives input. And, and the outcome is a standard that is beneficial to everybody in the ecosystem, not just one party, which is kind of why the task codes don't work well, because they were designed for one participant and not the the entire set of stakeholders. We are looking at a number of new work group, working groups, or some are already in play like bankruptcy. So ultimately these could end up, I'll say, displacing the task codes because they'll be designed for pricing and legal project management and the things that, that we need them to be designed for. So if I look back at my career and said, Toby, what did you do that would have the biggest impact on innovation in the legal industry? The answer is Sally. That's awesome. Because standards are a foundation for innovation. The example I like to use, I'm pointing over to an outlet, is imagine if every power outlet was different. And you can if you've traveled internationally. And if every power outlet was different, then electrical appliances, we wouldn't have as many and they wouldn't be as interesting because we'd have to be fighting with, you know, having 20 different types of plugs in our homes to do, you know, the GE appliances versus the others. So standards are foundational for innovation. 
Now, when COVID hit, I thought it was going to slow down the development of the Sally standards. It accelerated it. And we got a huge boost at the clock conference um, in May when Thomson Reuters announced it is embedding the Sally codes in all of its products, starting with its e-billing product, Legal Tracker. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, immediately the other providers started saying, oh, we're doing that too. We're doing that too. And we've just had tons of traction. In fact, we called our meeting today the Victory Lap to talk about all of the stuff we have going on, the new working groups and the adoption and all kinds of things like that. So I'm very proud of Sally. And Sally is an organization also run by volunteers. There's a core group of us that meet actually every other Friday and keep everything moving. So that's one other organization I like to point out. That's awesome. In the little bit of time we got left, tell us about your new venture, Deviate Legal Strategies. What is it? What does it do? And what should people know about it? Well, thank you for giving me a moment to chat about that. Sometimes I actually forget to mention. So when I look at at the legal market and you and I have been sharing frustrations about getting partners to to do things maybe a a little differently. Right. When I look at the market at a broader level, then you're a former managing partner. When I see law firm strategies that are spoken of publicly, they're all the exact same strategy. We're going to grow major markets, <laughs> you know, on the coast, blah, blah, blah. A light bulb went off years ago when I was reading an article from Baker Botts. My, my lovely better half used to work at Baker Botts, so it caught my eye. And he was, he was talking about their strategy. And I said, wait a tick, that's our strategy. And so the foundation of Deviate is that if all firms have the same strategy and legal departments, but mostly firms, then we already know who's going to win because they're already winning. Right. If you want to actually succeed, you have to deviate. You have to try something different. You have to understand where you're strong and where you're not and where you're, where the, the real profits of your practice come from. And those will all be very informative to a better strategy, an actual strategy. And then once you have, once firms start thinking that way, then all of the other decisions, like what's our pricing strategy? How much should we be investing in legal project management? All of those things become more obvious. And, and then you can set the strategies of those functions underneath that. I feel like a growing angst and anxiety in the market right now because a lot of these innovation projects are going on and everyone's like, are we innovating in the right way? And I'm like, well, it would be aligned with the strategy of your business. And they're all like, yeah, we don't know what that is. So we're, we're just trying things, which is why I think, and I'm sure you've seen this a lot, a lot of innovations, I wouldn't necessarily just say they fail, but they sputter because they're a great idea, but they weren't well aligned with where the firm actually is positioned and therefore they don't succeed. So deviate legal strategies is really going to be focused on helping firms and legal departments and actually Legal tech providers, surprisingly, they're coming out of the woodwork wanting to partner with me. Not surprising at all. They have the same challenge. They do. They do. In fact, well, I'm going to, can I give one more pioneering thing that I'm doing? Yeah, absolutely. This is one I don't talk about as much because for reasons you will become obvious. So five plus years ago, I took over lateral partner acquisition, and I purposely use that word at Perkins Coie, and I turned it from a talent recruiting function into an M&A-like function. Because I looked at it and I said, this is not looking for talent. We're looking for small businesses or that we're plucking out of other businesses. And so we should look at our strategy and say, where do we have gaps in our business or where do we want to augment our business? And so we ended up, we call it our priority matrix, which is a true set of priorities for what types of law, what size of book, 
what geographies and it's it's truly a strategy. We have due diligence function and we have a full on integration function. And just like corporate M&A, the integration function gets involved well before the deal's closed. So Perkins also has, and this is generally public, our, their success rate of retaining, succeeding in retaining with partners varies between 80 and 85%. That's awesome. Whereas the market's more like 55%. So that's an innovation people don't know about. Well, there's some tech providers who sell into that space and they're like, we want to partner with you. <laughs> so stuff like that could be very interesting. And, and it would also help the firms drive their strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it sounds like an incredible venture. You've been at it now, what, all of four months? Yeah. Well, my departure from Perkins, it was sort of a phase down where I passed off, you know, functions to other chiefs and such like that. So technically I was an employee of Perkins Cooey until December 2nd, but I started talking about and, and, and evangelizing DV8 before then. Okay. Well, we've, we've gone over our time. I appreciate the conversation and I appreciate your willingness to share these ideas. There'll be a, a link to deviate in the show notes for those people listening. They want to contact you. Very good. Thank you. Toby, thank you very much for the time and the insights. It's been fascinating. Thanks for having me. This has been a fun conversation. I enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it as well. Enjoy the warm weather down there. <laughs> I can do that. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.